The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Blackbird, bye-bye. In the skunk works, the usual stink from the nearby plastics factory drifted in through the open windows of the Burbank Engineering Building. Kelly Johnson and the rest of his engineers hardly noticed anymore as they were intensely involved in designing one of the most secret and advanced aircraft ever conceived. Out of all the creations that this hotbed of Lockheed Genius was to produce, this was to be their pinnacle, the fastest air-breathing manned aircraft that has ever flown. Ever since work on the U-2 was completed, Kelly knew that his current project would be needed. The U-2 that the Skunk Works designed in 1953 was slow, and although it flew at incredible altitudes in the rarefied air of the upper atmosphere, it was easy to track on radar and was eventually going to be vulnerable as the Soviets developed a counter, as Gary Powers would find out. The new project was named Archangel and began in late 1958. The CIA were the customers, and they looked at 11 successive designs over the next year, but although A-10 was the front-runner, they wanted its radar cross-sectional area reduced by an incredible 90%. A contract worth $96 million was approved, and from it came the A-12. Convair was also in the competition, but despite their aircraft being named the first invisible super hustler, I think the CIA may have balked at flying a fish. Development was hampered as the aircraft was entering areas of aviation previously unimagined. Entirely new technologies had to be invented, many of which are still in use today. One of the biggest problems the engineers had was working with titanium. Previously on high-speed aircraft, the material was only needed in areas such as the exhaust fairings and wing-leading edges. However, the A-12 was constructed almost entirely of titanium, with some iron ferrite and silicon laminates, both of which were combined with asbestos to absorb radar returns. There were only limited reserves of the precious rutile ore needed, so the CIA conducted a worldwide search using third parties and dummy companies. They eventually managed to purchase the base metal from one of the world's leading exporters, the Soviet Union. So, the A-12 was conceived, built and first flew in 1962, it was both unofficial and unannounced. It was then and still looks like a science fiction spaceship built for Buck Rogers. Two enormous engines are embedded mid-span into a small round-tipped delta wing from which a long fuselage juts with its flattened and sharpened chines, flat bottom and blended upper portion into which the angular cockpit is mounted. Two angled fins adhere to the engine cowlings, in front of which are fitted large pointed cone-shaped intake spikes. To think that this elegant, sleek and purposeful design was created on a draftsman's board and not by computer goes to prove the genius that existed in the skunk works. 
even stationary on the ground, it looks like it's already supersonic. The requirements for this aircraft were almost beyond the reach of the engineers. It needed to fill the role of a long-range reconnaissance aircraft, cruising at Mach 3 plus and over 80,000 feet. Vitally, it should also have a tiny radar cross-sectional area. The aircraft's enormous speed also assisted in radar invisibility. The radar technology of the period suffered from noise and needed clutter rejection systems. The operators could tell an aircraft from the repeated hits that built up in a trail of returns across the screen at the speed that the A-12 flew. Its tiny returns were so widely spaced that they just disappeared into the background clutter. The project wasn't without its setbacks. An aircraft with so many cutting-edge technologies was bound to suffer from problems, particularly whilst the test pilot strived to explore the very edges of its flight envelope. The first loss came when CIA pilot Ken Collins was flying in cloud when the water froze in his aircraft's pitot-static boom. With erroneous information on his displays, he inadvertently stalled, and when the aircraft entered an inverted spin, he ejected. The aircraft crashed near Wendover in Utah. The reaction to the crash illustrated the secrecy and importance of the project. The CIA called the aircraft a Republic F-105 Thunder Chief as a cover story. Local law enforcement and a passing family were warned with dire consequences to keep quiet about the crash. Each was also paid $25,000 in cash to do so. The project often used such cash payments to avoid outside inquiries into its operations. The CIA ordered 12, some of which were deployed to Asia and used during Operation Black Shield over North Vietnam to identify surface-to-air missile sites. Operations and maintenance at Gadina began with the receipt of an alert notification. Both a primary aircraft and pilot and a backup aircraft and pilot were selected. The aircraft were given thorough inspections and servicing, all systems were checked and the cameras equipped. Pilots received a detailed route briefing in the early evening prior to the day of the flight. On the morning of the flight, a final briefing occurred, at which time the condition of the aircraft and its systems were reported, last-minute weather forecast reviewed, and other relevant intelligence communicated, together with any amendments or changes in the flight plan. Two hours prior to takeoff, the primary pilot had a medical examination, got into his suit, and was taken to the aircraft. If any malfunctions developed on the primary aircraft, the backup could execute the mission one hour later. A typical route profile for a mission over North Vietnam included a refueling shortly after takeoff south of Okinawa, the planned photographic pass or passes, withdrawal to a second aerial refueling in the Thailand area, and a return to Kadena. Its turning radius of 86 miles was such, however, that on some mission profiles it might be forced during its turn to intrude into Chinese airspace. Once landed, the camera film was removed from the aircraft, boxed, and sent by special plane to the processing facilities. 
film from earlier missions, was developed at the Eastman Kodak plant in Rochester, New York. There were a number of reasons leading to the retirement of the A-12, but one major concern was the growing sophistication of Soviet-supplied SAM sites that it had to contend with over mission routes. During a second pass over a target, pilot Dennis Sullivan saw at least six missiles being fired, each confirmed by missile vapour trails on mission photography. Looking through his rear-view periscope, Sullivan saw six missile trails climb to about 90,000 feet before converging on his aircraft. He noted the approach of four missiles, and although they all detonated behind him, one came within a 100 yards of his aircraft. Post-flight inspection revealed that a piece of metal had penetrated the lower right-wing fillet area and lodged against the support structure of the wing tank. From the A-12 in 1962, the SR-71 Blackbird was born. The Air Force version was longer and heavier, with a two-seat cockpit, and a total of 32 were built. The chines were reshaped and the recce equipment was improved with ELINT sensors and sideways looking radar in addition to the cameras. The aircraft was painted a deep dark blue that looked almost black, hence its name. Whilst it carried radar countermeasures, the Blackbird's main missile defence was merely to out-accelerate inbound missiles. No other aircraft in the world could match its height and speed. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. However, some aircraft were lost, but none in more dramatic circumstances than that of Bill Weaver's machine. His mission was to investigate how to reduce trim drag during high-speed Mach cruise by locating the C of G further aft than was usual. At 78,000 feet and doing a mere 3.2 Mach, they began a turn but soon suffered a right inlet unstart, soon followed by a loss of thrust from the right J58 engine. An inlet unstart occurred when a shockwave was rapidly ejected outside of the intake area, disturbing the airflow. The asymmetric force soon had an effect and Weaver jammed his stick as far left and forward as it would go, but there was no response. He was in for a wild ride. The chances of a safe ejection at that heightened speed were remote, so Bill and his Rio, Jim Zwea, decided to stay with the aircraft until it reached a lower altitude. However, the system's failures meant that his aircraft exceeded the authority of his flight controls in a second or two and entered a catastrophic departure from controlled flight. Jim blacked out under extremely high G-forces and his aircraft literally disintegrated around him. The next thing he recalled was the rushing sound of air around him as he fell earthwards. He hadn't initiated ejection, but had been bodily thrown from the aircraft as it broke up. His pressure suit was keeping him alive, but he couldn't see anything as his faceplate was frozen up. 
As he plummeted down, an emergency oxygen bottle kept his chute pressurised, preventing his blood from boiling, and a tiny drogue chute stabilised him and kept him from being beaten to death whilst tumbling through the thin atmosphere. At 15,000 feet, his main parachute should open, but he couldn't see the ground. As he reached for his faceplate, he felt the reassuring deceleration of his main chute deploying, and he floated down into New Mexico. His landing was seen by a ranch owner, Albert Mitchell, who first helped Bill and then took his helicopter to search for Jim Swear. Mitchell returned a while later with the sad news that Jim was dead. He had suffered a broken neck during the aircraft's disintegration of being killed instantly. An investigation revealed that the nose section of the aircraft had broken off just after the cockpit. The resulting G-forces had literally ripped the crew out of the aircraft. After CFG testing was discontinued and the trim drag issues were solved by aerodynamic means. Moreover, the inlet control system was improved and the inlet unstarts almost stopped with the development of digital automatic flight and inlet control systems. Two weeks after his brush with death, Jim was back in a Blackbird. It was his first flight since the crash, and his flight test engineer in the back seat was probably a little apprehensive, wondering how Bill was going to be. As they thundered down the runway, he heard the engineer's voice over the intercom, Bill? Bill? Are you still there? Yeah, George, Weaver replied. What's the matter? The back seat of the SR-71 was enclosed with no forward view, just a couple of small side windows, and when the master warning panel there showed a big red warning reading, Pilot Ejected, the engineer thought he might be on his own. Fortunately, it was just a misadjusted micro-switch. Even by today's standards, the Blackbird was an innovative and incredibly sophisticated aircraft. Its speed was actually limited by the temperature of the air entering the engine compressor, which was not certified above 427 degrees centigrade. The engines were started by a massive Buick Wildcat V8 engine that spun them from underneath via a vertical shaft. The fuel the aircraft used was initially a type of coal slurry, then liquid hydrogen, but in practice, JP-7 was used because of its high flash point, plus its thermal stability. To start the engine, triethylborane, which ignites on contact with air, was first injected as a starting aid, giving rise to the characteristic green starting flame. The Blackbird updated its inertial navigation system through a sophisticated astro-inertial system which could track the blue light of stars even in daylight and could maintain a 1,000-foot accuracy even above Mach 3. The pressure suits which the crew wore would keep them alive should the aircraft depressurize at 80,000 feet. The cockpit needed a lot of cooling at over Mach 3 as the skin would heat to over 260 degrees centigrade and the inside of the windshield reached 120 degrees C. The tyres also suffered from high temperatures and a special aluminium rubber mix was developed. They cost $2,300 each 
and only lasted 20 missions. The fuselage panels were only a loose fit to allow expansion at their operating temperature, which meant the aircraft would leak JP-7 onto the ground before takeoff. The Blackbird family of aircraft flew over 17,000 missions, 3,551 of which were operational sorties. Over 11,675 hours were spent above Mach 3. It holds many speed and altitude records, including a sustained altitude record of 80,069 feet, an absolute speed record of 1,905 knots, which relates to Mach 3.3, although one pilot claimed to have reached Mach 3.5, evading a missile over Libya. It also holds the New York to London speed record, of over 1,800 knots, completing the journey in 1 hour, 54 minutes and 57 seconds. The Blackbird was initially retired in 1990, but in 1993, three were returned to service at the cost of $72 million to provide reconnaissance over Bosnia, the Middle East and North Korea. When UAVs proved to be a more cost-effective solution, this remarkable aircraft was finally retired in 1999.